Hey everyone, David Chen here, and today on Culturally Relevant, we have a bonus episode. I have a chance to speak with Alex Perry, who's the author of a new piece called The Last Days of John Allen Chow at OutsideOnline.com. Now, I actually recommended this piece during weekly recommendations on this week's episode of Culturally Relevant. John Allen Chow was an American missionary who traveled to the Andaman Islands trying to reach one of the last uncontacted tribes on Earth. He was killed and news of his death spread internationally last fall, uh, and he was made the object of great ridicule. Alex Perry's piece takes a closer look at what drove this person to his death uh, and what we can learn from it. I'm always interested in pieces that look beyond the headlines and that give more dimensions to characters that the news media can make into one-dimensional. And so I really appreciated Alex Perry taking the time to chat with me about his article. Alex Perry is also the author of books such as The Good Mother, The Rift, and Falling Off the Edge. His work has appeared in The New Yorker, The Guardian, Time, and Newsweek. And you can find The Last Days of John Allen Chow at OutsideOnline.com. Before I get to the conversation, just want to say you can find more episodes of the show at culturallyrelevantshow.com. Email me at culturallyrelevantshow at gmail.com. And we'd be really grateful if you could give us a follow on Twitter. That's at CREVSHOW, C-R-E-V-S-H-O-W. Or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you're enjoying what I'm doing on this podcast, uh, those things, following the show on Twitter or leaving a review, really do help me get a profile where I can get more guests in the future and keep this podcast running. So those are really simple things you can do to help the show. Just takes a second. Uh, Here's my conversation with Alex Perry. Alex Perry, thanks so much for joining me today. How are you doing, sir? Fine. Thanks for having me, David. Great to have you on. And tell us about how you first heard the story of John Allen Chow and what the broad strokes of the narrative were when you first heard about it. Uh, I mean, I guess I heard about it of of John's story, like like everybody else, almost, you know, very soon after he died. um, The news from even as remote a place as the Andaman Islands did ping out across the world pretty quickly um, within days of his, his death. And the coverage was more or less universal. I mean, you know, I don't, I'm not sure there was, you know, really a single, uh, newspaper magazine or TV channel in any language that didn't in some way mention it. It was just the idea of, of someone landing on a desert Island and being killed by what was generally reported as a stone age tribe. It's just a, a kind of electric headline. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, I mean, you know, for me, coverage was, well, for everybody, I guess coverage was, was universal. The reason I was so interested was, um, I've had an interest in those islands for about 16 or 17 years. Um, and in particularly the tribes, the whole colonial history of the islands, trying to get to the tribes was a major ambition of mine when I was a correspondent in India for five years from 2002 to 2006. Uh, and I, I failed several times. In fact, I was thrown off the islands. Um, so I had always kept in touch with the story and I'd never quite found a way to tell it actually. Um, the, the story of kind of your own interest in the islands. Yeah, and, and, and just these tribes. I mean, I did actually, I was working for Time magazine at the time, and I wrote a story uh, which I sent to an editor who sort of said to me, it's all very interesting, but we're a news magazine, and as far as I can work out, this story is 10,000 years old. Um, <laughs> so it's, uh, which, you know, he's right. The whole the whole story of this tribe, these are, or, or, or the tribes of the Andamans, there, are, there were five 
black African tribes living in the middle of Asia. The theory is that they migrated out of Africa tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years ago. So almost the first people to, to walk out of the cradle of life. This group of people found their way to a, a mountain range that connected Burma to Indonesia. 10,000 years ago, the ice caps melted somewhat, the seas rose, and that mountain range turned into a string of islands, which is now the Anamar and Nicobar Islands. And, uh, and, and they've been isolated ever since. They've been cut off from the world and, and sort of preserved in that hunter-gatherer state. So, so you have, as I say in the story, you know, I mean, it's a kind of anthropological wonder, people living as they did 10,000 years ago in the modern age, for the religious, it's you know you're basically looking at Adam and Eve. Right. Um, so so you know the, I was fascinated by these tribes. I mean it, it's it's just it almost defies belief. On top of that, I discovered that uh, one uh, tribesman from one tribe had uh, broken his leg, had been treated in hospital uh, in in the main. Uh, uh, settlement, Port Blair, the sort of Indian settlement, and had learned Hindi. So there was actually a possibility of interviewing him and, and kind of speaking across that divide of, of 10,000 years. At least that was my thinking at the time. I've now almost completely revised my thinking of how I think of those tribes. But at the time, in my sort of slightly puerile ignorance, I was going after an interview with a Stone Age caveman. So I want to get to that a little bit later, but let's talk a little bit more first about John, John Allen Chow and his story. You, you're sure. talking about how the coverage was universal and how the headlines were electric. Uh, what do you think the tone of that coverage well, was? You know, like yeah, how would you characterize the tone? That. Electric, but um, almost universally disapproving. Right. Uh, more or less led by um, Survival International, which is a, a, an indigenous advocacy group um, in London that campaigns for uh, kind of tribal people's rights. And, and, and survival sets the tone, actually, really, of, of all coverage of these groups. It's, it's a very effective uh, campaign group. And I have to say, you know, mostly I think most people would agree with what they're trying to do, which is to preserve culture and diversity and um, push back at kind of uh, colonialism or imperialism, not necessarily of the old sort, but of kind of modern intervention. Um, that said, that in, in our modern age, their disapproval um, was taken up around the world as a license to hold kind of an online pogrom uh, against John Chow. I mean, the, the idea that this, you know, really what you had here was a, a tragedy. One man had, had, had died and it was John. Um, but his death and that tragedy of that was almost completely forgotten. Uh, thousands of people saying, well, he deserved to die. He was an idiot. He was a white supremacist. He was all sorts of things, you know, and, and, and frankly, it, in, um, at a time when his family were reeling from the shock of his death for them to be, you know, subjected to, to, to their son's sort of vilification after his death, it was totally inhumane. And, and I found it, 
I guess I wasn't shocked because, you know, we've seen that kind of online, uh, you know, leaping on somebody, you know, that, that, that it's, it's, it's revolting human behavior. It, it is something that we've become accustomed to it. But this time, I have to say, a, a light did go off in my head. You know, I know from reporting experience that no one is as one-dimensional as John was 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 being portrayed. Mm. You know, I mean, I, I've interviewed some incredibly nasty people in my time. Uh, you know, dictators in Africa and jihadis and and whatever, um, and they've all. Uh, got a more rounded personality than their caricature would suggest, and it and it is a you know it is a horrible trend of our time for for the you know for this kind of loss of empathy not not only to exist to be but to be kind of celebrated and enforced by these kind of online polices. It, it did feel like you know in a strange way the incredibly cruel nature. Uh, of this condemnation, you know, people may have had, you know, justifications for opposing John's reasons for going fine, but for God's sake, do it in a civilized manner. You know, where's your humanity? Um, I, 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 you know, and I thought, you know, in, in a weird way that opened up a massive space to go in without judgment, uh, you know, suspend judgment and, and embrace empathy and try and, just tell the story of who this guy was and what happened and why, you know, in, in, in a way, you know, all that condemnation, all that, all that concentration of fury kind of left the field wide open. Were there any specific misunderstandings uh, that the media might've had about John Allen Chow that you wanted your story to correct? I mean, I, I no, I wasn't on any kind of mission in that sense, but I think the story you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, that wasn't necessarily my intention. As I say, my intention is just to be an old fashioned journalist, you know, what happened and why. Um, what I, what I did uncover was some explanations that were definitely missing from the, from the prevalent narrative though. You know, one that he was an idiot, you know, right. No, he was not. This guy had been planning this for over a decade. He was meticulous. Um, you know, this was his fourth trip to the islands. He prepped, he'd he done an enormous amount of research and reading. Uh, he was physically in shape. Um, he prepared himself mentally, spiritually. He had an enormous amount of equipment with him. He, he, he'd done a course in learning unspoken languages. He tried to immunize himself against all kinds of diseases. This guy, you know, this was his life's work actually. And he wasn't going just to kind of, um, you know, touch tag and leave. He was going for life. You know, he was not coming back. This was, he was, he was, so that, that speaks to another, uh, something else I kind of discovered that, you know, this wasn't, um, uh, he wasn't a kind of imperialist bully, uh, forcing something on people. His plan was actually quite the reverse to be incredibly patient to live there for years, it, you know, hopefully that they'd accepted him, to pick up their language, to learn customs, and then very gradually kind of introduce his beliefs to, to the tribe. I mean, you know, you may say that that's wrong and that that's interfering in their culture. I try to explain why John thought it was right. And as I say, kind of 
sort of suspend judgment. But I mean, the, the last thing that I discovered that absolutely blew my mind was was that a lot of John's story seemed to trace back to a moment when he was 17. He was the youngest of three kids, the elder two of which had gone on to medical careers. And John himself was headed in that direction. And, and all the kids were following their father, who was also a doctor. Then when John was 17, his father got busted by two undercover DEA agents for selling opioids and Xanax uh, without due care you know, kind of sort of dealing and um, had his license suspended. It was a total sort of family disgrace and not coincidentally at all. Uh, that was the precise moment that A, his father lost any influence over John and B, John took a sharp left turn into being a real outdoorsman and doing a lot of hiking alone, actually, and also into kind of radical uh, missionary Christianity. Yeah, you talk in the piece about how his Instagram page is a testament to the idea of the lone traveler. Like it's often him out in the wilderness by himself or like a lone figure in the wilderness. Uh, and you kind of trace us back to this moment in his life when his father uh, got busted. Like that, that that was a big moment for him. Right. Uh, I mean, I, I you know, I'm, I'm slightly, you know, filling in uh, gaps there. Although, I mean, his father says, you know, was very candid about that was the time when John kind of went off on his own and, and, and they never, they were never really able to, to influence him much again. But this whole idea of the, um, the solitary path, which is actually the name that he, he gave to a blog that he started. That's it. That I discovered that's also a really big thing amongst young, uh, Christian missionary men in the States. And, and, um, it's, it's a kind of subculture in the whole spectrum of missionary work around the world. There's a, there's a kind of e extreme end of that, which is kind of an extreme sports end of that. Uh, it's all about um, the story of a lone guy heading into the jungle or into the forest to meet an uncontacted tribe and not infrequently not coming back alive. You know, that is the story that these guys tell over and over um, and you can trace it, you know, the, there are several books out there of, of missionaries that have done this. One that really sort of inspired John was a guy called Jim Elliott, who was killed by a tribe in Ecuador um, in the 50s and actually turned out to be to have lived within walking distance of John's house uh, in Washington state. So there was. Yeah, he, he was it, it, it wasn't an original idea for John. And, and I was I was quite surprised actually to discover that this this whole kind of subculture and and that is the narrative that everybody is following and and venerating. Yeah, I think what's interesting is uh, I grew up in a very conservative Christian church, and for the record, Jim Elliot was held up as a a hero in our circles. Right, you know, like he was uh, the logical conclusion of everything that you might do as an evangelical Christian. Uh, and what's interesting about the, the piece that you identify is the intersection of that with kind of online Instagram bro culture almost, like this yeah. idea of like, hey, you know, oh, I'm so stoked to get out there as like that kind of coincide or intersecting somehow with the idea of converting lost tribes in a way that creates its own kind of culture, right? Well, you know, they're making it cool, right? Yeah. Because I guess, um, 
you know, Christianity, uh, that conservative side of Christianity can be quite square, right? Um, but these guys are, they do some pretty, you know, awesome radical things. You know, John was, was constantly, um, not just hiking, but, you know, bushwhacking off, off the trails, uh, bagging a new peak in incredibly hard conditions. He was always, he always seemed to do the biggest mountains when it was snowing really hard and stuff like that. You know, he was, he was, yeah, you know, pushing the envelope. Um, and if you met him, you know, hiking or, uh, when he was a guide in, in, in this park that he worked at in Washington state, you'd have thought, you know, what a dude, you know, and, he, and he's dedicating his life to the outdoors and to experience and to travel to new places. You know, what, what, a, what an admirable lifestyle, actually. Um, and that's what John filled his Instagram page with. And as you know, you discovered, actually, or I discovered it was kind of a cover. You know, yes, he was doing all those things. What he was leaving out was this was all prep for his trip to the Andaman Islands. When, when you read the news coverage, it feels like, oh, this guy thoughtlessly just decided to go there on a lark. You know, like that, that might be what you come away right. with. But when you read your piece in OutsideOnline.com, it's very clear that this is something he had prepared for, that he put a lot of thought into, and that he wanted to, in, insofar as one could do this in the right way, like you might disagree that it's possible, it's impossible to do it in the right way, but insofar as there is a right way to do it, he was trying to do it in the right way. Uh, and sure. Well, well, I mean, even, even, you know, when you look at the history of the tribes on these islands, the, the right way of doing it, uh, as most people would think, you know, the kind of secular conservationist way, as in preserve these people, don't interfere with their lifestyle, except that they want to be left alone. That's not working. It's clearly, clearly not working of the five tribes that I talked about originally on the Andaman Islands, one has gone extinct. Um, three of them have had their numbers cut from tens of thousands to really, you know, you could fit them in a small room. I think one of them is, there's now 50 of them left. One of them, there's maybe a hundred. And, and the tribe we're talking about, the Sentinelese, no one's really sure of the numbers because no one, you know, ever survives landing on the island. But, you know, there's somewhere between 50 and 200. That's it. The only tribe that um, has prospered on these islands is further south in the Nicobars, and that was a tribe, lo and behold, that was successfully approached by missionaries in the 19th century in a very soft and gentle way um, that, it, that has ended up producing a, a, a kind of syncretic Christianity that strict Christians really wouldn't recognize, but... You know, Christian missionaries often say that Christianity is a way to introduce an inter indigenous people into the world and to modernity. Well, in the you know, in that case, that turned out to be true. That tribe has prospered. There are their their, their population is about twenty thousand. Uh, they include doctors and lawyers and businessmen amongst their number. The point being, nobody pushes them around in the modern world. They they control their own affairs. They have their own MP in the Indian Parliament. And, and they've managed to preserve all their culture. In fact, their, their, their preservation and, and, and res resilience is so strong um, that um, they even withstood the 2004 tsunami. So, you know, if you look actually at the context of these islands, 
and you look at who has had most success in terms of kind of cultural preservation, it's the missionaries. It's not the survival international types. You mentioned several tribes that went extinct mm. or, or have dwindled dramatically in numbers. What drives that reduction in numbers or that extinction? It's Well, initially, it's um, meeting the outside world and catching all their diseases in, in much the same way as Native Americans in the States were wiped out by flu and measles and so on. Exactly the same thing happened on the Andaman Islands. Coupled with that was uh, suppression uh, by British colonialists. So that, that dwindling in numbers happened really very quickly uh, in the first kind of uh, century or even less uh, of contact with the outside world. The Jangil is the tribe that went extinct. I mean, the British didn't really get a foothold on the Andaman Islands till about the 1860s. The Jangil were extinct within two generations. Um, the, the, the other tribes' numbers were were down to i mean they've actually somewhat recovered but what but one tribe was down to sort of 29 people i think it's it's now recovered to around sort of 50 or 60 but even so these tribes are doomed i mean the the, the these islands are are being now being kind of earmarked as kind of the new thai islands big tourist resorts are moving in the, the island that we're talking about that john tried to get to is two hours sail from a city of 140,000 people that holds the main airport. You know, they may be a, you know, you, you may think of them as a sort of Stone Age tribe or a hunter-gatherers, whatever, but they've got 747s flying overhead every two hours, you know. So, so the modern world is encroaching, and, and the idea that these guys will live in seclusion forever is frankly just impractical. It, it's, it's never going to work. The outside world will inevitably wash over them. And if you know history is any guide on these islands, they'll be wiped out. The only case where that's not happened is where they where it was missionaries gave them the resources to kind of stand up for themselves. Yeah, I think there were s several things about your piece that were really illuminating. One of them, as we've already mentioned, is the fact that... Uh, John did really prepare. And the second thing is, as you just pointed out, uh, that in fact, w whether or not we like it, whether or not we think that that is a good outcome, uh, which I, I think most of us would say it's not a good outcome, a as you say, uh, these untouched tribes will soon be touched by modern society and the results are usually catastrophic for them. Um, and yeah. so people like John Allen Chow represented one way in which they could survive. Now, and, and, and that's not necessarily just me saying that. That's, you know, the, the, I, you know, that opinion, it surprised me, came from an anthropologist on the islands who has been studying them for 20 years and whose whole life is dedicated to preserving these tribes his opinion was his own secular approach was failing and that the only approach that had worked so far was the missionary one yeah. now you may exactly you know obviously the missionary approach has its problems in yeah. terms of interfering in other people's cultures but just in terms of practical life or death there is clearly one approach here that 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 seems to have yeah. worked, and and don't forget also that you know survival international. If there's been no contact with this tribe at all, you know, literally because nobody speaks their language, then the idea, you know, you're taking their attacking the outside outside world as their opinion that they want to be left alone, okay, but you know there is amount of presumption there. If this tribe has never experienced the outside world 
I think we can say that their choice is quite an uninformed one. You know, and I've had many conversations with anthropologists working in those islands going, do you know what? If we, if we describe to them in some way what a five-star hotel looked like, do you think they'd stay in the jungle? You know, who knows? The point is, you know, maybe they would. And in fact, the experience of another tribe, Jarrowa, uh, on these islands, they had two years of interaction with the city of Port Blair. Used to go on tours, you know, tasted curry, watched Bollywood videos, the whole deal. And after two years, they, they kind of stopped appearing. And, and, and the considered opinion was they got bored with it. They, they'd had a look at the outside world. And, but, you know, after a while, they just tired of the bright lights and they preferred the jungle. Fine, you know. But my point being is, is that survival accuses people like John of presumptuousness. Well, you know, you've got to remember there is a certain amount of presumption on their part too. It's, that's very interesting. The, the final component that I think your piece really does a great job of illuminating is the idea that John, on some level, didn't want to go, right? That he, he kind of knew that going would mean his certain doom, but uh, he knew that that was also that, that he, he felt that that was what God wanted him to do. And he, he preferred to live. I think you actually say that mm. you find one of his journals where he says like he, he would prefer to live, but he understands that God might have different plans for him. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, there's two things going on here. John sort of felt that he'd been called to do this. Yeah. And, and in that sense, um, it was out of his hands. You know, what happened he, as from his journal, as the days go go on you know as he's trying to meet the tribe and they're resisting him you know there's a it's a very rapid descent from his you know initial exhilaration to you know terror frankly and despair um and then kind of acceptance that he's probably going to die but you've also got to remember the other thing in john's mind is he's expecting a miracle you know this is what happens um, is is you you think this can't possibly work out? But if you read the if you know your Bible, you know that it's full of stories with people certain that they're about to die, certain that disaster is about to arrive, and then a miracle happens. God saved them, and everything's okay. So you know John is expecting a miracle. That that's also why he keeps going. So tell us a little bit about. Uh, your own fascination with the islands. You know, you, you said reading about John Allen Chow had awakened in you this story you tried to pursue decades ago, and there's this kind of parallel with John's life. Like, tell us about uh, how you got fascinated with these islands, what eventually dissuaded you from trying to contact these uncontacted tribes. So, I mean, I arrived in India uh, kind of early 2002. I'd only been working for Time magazine for about a year, and most of that I'd been in... Um, Afghanistan, actually, I was a war correspondent. Um, and, uh, India was a beat that had uh, a number of, of different conflicts going on. And I have to say that was my main interest, but, you know, somehow I got introduced to this anthropologist who told me about a Neolithic tribe living in the middle of the Indian ocean. And I, I you know, it's just one of those stories you're like, what? It's like someone's told you there's a Yeti exists and I know how to get there or something. <laughs> and, um, I just became totally obsessed. Uh, you know, it turned out he was right. Uh, the, and, and, um, I almost immediately went out there actually and just 
so in a very actually I was I was totally unprepared and hadn't done any of my homework and hadn't done any of the right reading I just sort of went and thought you know let's see if we can make this happen um and I hadn't realized one that um you know the practical the practicalities of meeting any tribe were immense uh, I mean they seclude themselves in the forest there's obviously the language barrier the forest is patrolled by um, rangers and so on. Uh, on top of that, the Andaman, are, Andaman and Nicobar Islands are a, a military area, a border area for India. And that means that they don't actually conform to the normal Indian democratic norms. They're, they're, they're run as a, as a kind of autocratic state. The military has very free reign. Uh, and so does, you know, and that sort of is reflected by the tone of anyone in officialdom you meet who basically will deny you any uh, permission to do anything. And from the moment I turned up on the islands, I actually picked up a tail from the airport uh, of uh, Indian policemen in a jeep behind me, who, whenever I stopped to try and talk to anybody, would more or less stand between me and my interviewee. <laughs> and, uh, and, and in the end, I got, um, I got into a shoving match with this policeman. I just sort of said, look, you know, India is a free country. And I think his response was basically, not here, it's not. Um, <laughs> and having uh, uh, shoved him, I was kind of arrested and, uh, and taken to meet the lieutenant governor of the islands and, and asked to leave. Um, I did go back a few times. I went back after the tsunamis. These islands were actually almost the first landmass uh, to be hit by the tsunami. They were that close to it. Um, and the disaster, that, that was a whole other story. Uh, you know, islands literally disappeared beneath the waves and new ones appeared. It was incredibly dramatic. But these, the whole atmosphere on these islands, you've got 836 islands, 31 of which are inhabited, six of which have uh, hunter-gatherer tribes on them uh, from Africa. It, it, there's a whole otherworldly sense. You know, they are, when you, when you reach them from India, you've got to fly over open water for two hours. And then these things just appear out of the ocean. And the whole atmosphere in Port Blair, it feels like a place struggling to impose itself. You know, the, 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 the jungle is eating away at every building. There, you know, there the, are the, the vines snaking around columns and, and tearing through the wires. There's cyclones rolling off the Bay of Bengal the whole time. There's a rainstorm. The whole thing feels like people shouldn't be here. You know, it's got it's got that real sort of lost world feel. And and to be honest, I found the whole thing kind of absolutely intoxicating. I, yeah. I you know, it, it slightly sinister, um, but um, you know, absolutely fascinating. Uh, and then you have on top of that the whole colonial history. You know, if, if I mean, the Brits have done appalling things around the world, but they really hit some some highs in the Andaman Islands um, in terms of what they did to the to the tribes, which was essentially shoot as many as they could, then stand back and 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 watch as their the European diseases that they brought in carried them off. Then they used the islands as a as a prison on which to put Indian rebels during the the nineteenth century mutinies against British rule. And then on top of that, they built a prison there designed so that they could look into every cell so that they could observe which prisoners were dying of malaria because they were conducting experiments on the prisoners 
to find out which malaria medicines were, were more effective. I mean, the, the whole, you know, the, every page you turn on the history, uh, particularly the British history in the Andaman Islands, is just excruciating. And it, and it seems to kind of infuse the whole place with this darkness and, and these, this kind of, these lessons about what happens when foreigners show up on these islands. You know, they, they tend to behave absolutely abominably. So tell us a little bit more about like what caused you to give up. Was it just the legal obstacles you encountered or the institutional obstacles you encountered that, that I mean, I, I tried, yeah, I mean, I, I tried for three or four years, but I also, yes, there were obstacles, but I began to change my mind about, and I began to think about what I was doing really re-examine myself. I mean, there's the whole, against all that history that I've just talked about, you know, the idea of a, of a white man heading into the jungle is a, is a really unfortunate image. And that was me, you know, what, what the hell was I doing? Um, on top of that, I, I, the last time I was on the islands, you know, before I got kicked off, I, I, I worked with a, a local journalist, you know, amazing journalist called, called Dennis Giles. And I, before I left, I, I left him kind of four pages of A4 of kind of hastily scribbled questions. Should this guy that spoke Hindi ever, you know, walk out of the forest? Could he go and see if he could interview him? You know, um, eight months later, I get this email from Dennis going, yeah, he, he came out and um, here are the answers to your questions. <laughs> uh, extraordinary, really. Um, and what came across from this interview was that I, you know, all my presumptions actually about who this guy was were completely wrong. Um, he was quite nuanced and complicated. And most arrestingly, he, he said the wrong things, uh, you know, to conform to the stereotype that I had. He quite liked the outside world. Um, he thought, uh, Jeeps and buses were great. Um, he really liked logging, which he thought cleaned the place up beautifully. <laughs> uh, you know, so, and then I, I talked more to the anthropologists and, and he'd also discovered a lot more about this story and about this guy and what had happened to him. And, and, and the story that we'd been told was he'd broken his leg, he'd been fixed in hospital and he'd gone back. Actually, he'd, broke, he'd had his leg broken for him by the father of a girl that he rather liked. Um, he'd, he'd, been, he'd spent so long in hospital because the Indian authorities wanted to kind of acclimatize him to the modern world and then send him back in as a kind of Trojan horse to, to tell his tribe about you know, how wonderful the outside world was and perhaps they shouldn't stop shooting everybody in it. And, and, and that's what happened. You know, the tribe... They sent him back in. The tribe started appearing on the road and getting lifts into town and, and going into Port Blair and seeing all the wonders of the outside world. And then, as I say, after about two years, they kind of lost interest. And this kid, Enme, also lost interest as well because when he went back to his people, reappearing from the dead, he became this kind of Marco Polo celebrity. This was the kid that had been out into the outside world and could explain it all to everybody. So he became this celebrity, actually. And instead of the girl that he originally was after, he got to marry the most beautiful girl in all the islands. And the moment he did that, he disappeared into the jungle and started a family. So 
you know, the, the anthropologist telling me this story, it, yeah, it's, it's a long story, but the lesson is fantastic because the lesson is, look at this kid, look at what he did. He, you know, manipulated uh, the outside world. He, he even met the Indian president. You know, he manipulated his own people. Everything was actually about him getting married. That's what he wanted. And he, he pursued his ambition until he got it. And then he got it. And, and once he got it, he left. In other words, he's a kind of ambitious, selfish schemer. Uh, you know, and the anthropologist is like, he's one of us. <laughs> you know, I just, I just love that story. It's, 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 you know, we are, and he was saying, he'd been studying these tribes for, for decades and he was looking at all the differences between us and them. And he said, I've got it completely back to front. It's the similarities. This guy is a modern 21st century man making his world, his way in the world in the same kind of messy way as the rest of us. And, um, you know, what he wants to do is get married and have kids. And, and, and he achieves that. So, you know, these to think of these people as backward in any way or different is wrong. And, and, and. To me, that's going back to what we were originally talking about is the whole lesson of this story and of John's story and whatever is it's about human empathy. You know, whether it whether you're John or you're uh, a Centralese tribesman or even a slightly puerile British reporter, you know, we are all the same. And it's and it's what links us really that is more important, not the divisions. One of the things that's really interesting about this story is this viewpoint that John has about his mission. Um, we, we were talking about it a little bit before and how he felt like he was destined for it, that God would protect him, or if God didn't protect him, that that was God's will to not protect him. Um, I, I posted your story on Facebook, and I wanted to read something that um, a, a friend of mine wrote in response to it. Um, sure. And... Uh, this friend uh, used to be a Christian, is is no longer, uh, and uh, I wanted to see what your reaction to this was. He says here, quote, uh, Since leaving Christianity, I've been obsessed with cults and fringe groups that use identical tactics to rope people into less socially acceptable ideologies. Once you hear enough of these stories, you realize that we're all a lot closer to participating in a Jonestown or a Heaven's Gate than we like to think we are. It's often not about intelligence or fanaticism. It's about damage, abuse, vulnerability, trust, manipulation, loneliness, depression, and meaning. I view people like John in much the same light as a Heaven's Gate or a Jonestown death, as much victim as perpetrator, and he probably could have been just about anybody in similar circumstances. Even mm. the family that introduced him to these ideas was actively trying to pull him back. Christianity has this inbuilt mechanism where negative external feedback actually encourages you to believe you're on the right path because you've been taught that the world will disown and mock you for standing firm in your belief. It's a terrifying tipping point that many, many people reach and never return from because it fundamentally breaks the way social order naturally operates, end quote. Um, yeah. I mean, that felt like a, a pretty accurate description of what happened to John in this case. That, yeah, he, I mean, yeah. look, we've 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 seen this playbook before as well, right? I've done a lot of work on um, jihadis. It's exactly the same thing. It's uh, you know, as I say, you know, John was at a moment of of trauma and family disgrace, and he discovered a whole new uh, family uh, in with with Christianity. Jihadis is often the same way, same kind of pivotal age, late teens. They are 
it generally troubled in some way. Could be drugs, could be a, a you know family that's splitting up, whatever. And you'll find a recruiter figure will zero in on these people. I actually met a jihadi recruiter um, who said, "Yeah, we targeted the troubled kids, and you give them a new family, and within weeks you've got them. They are so receptive. They are looking for uh, a new way, a new path." Um, yeah, it, it is an absolutely established playbook. You know, although they're late teens, it's child abuse, actually. I did see real parallels there, and I wasn't the only one. You know, John's father very definitely saw those same parallels. But I guess one th- difference I would say is that, like, I feel like this glorification of people like Jim Elliott is very much part of the mainstream of evangelical Christianity. Like, Sure. I did not go to a particularly fundamentalist Christian church when I grew up. And as I mentioned, people like Jim Elliott were celebrated. You know, like it wasn't yeah. as though that was a fringe viewpoint. Sacrifice and martyrdom, that's mainstream in almost any religion. It's yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, the, the selflessness for your God, that's that's it's it's that's a central tenet of almost any religion. And 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 yeah, the idea of the martyr, you know, the, the, the modern version of it is, as I say, is this kind of extreme sports element of, of missionary Christianity. But it's, you know, people have been getting their star on the wall. It, it isn't fringe. It's, it's as you say, it's, it's mainstream. And, it, and, and, and you find it deeply troubling, it sounds like. My whole process throughout reporting this was trying not to be troubled, I suppose. My, <laughs> my focus is on understanding. I don't want to recoil from anything. I want to try and get inside the mindset of someone who thinks he's going to die and is okay with that. You know, that, that's my purpose here. Um, as we talked about at the beginning, there's been quite a lot of, you know, quite enough judgment, actually, when it comes to John. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do something else. I'm trying to explain why. And I, to be honest, if I have a judgment, it's that that kind of old-fashioned journalism purpose is, is probably more worthy. That's what journalism is meant to be doing. Well, I think you do a great job of that in your piece at OutsideOnline.com. And uh, I want to thank you for talking to me today. Alex Perry is the author of books such as The Good Mother, The Rift, and Falling Off the Edge. His work has appeared in The New Yorker, The Guardian, Time, and Newsweek, and his latest piece, The Last Days of John Allen Chow, can be found at OutsideOnline.com. We'll link to it in the show notes. Also want to call out that The Good Mother, uh, your piece about the true story, your book, I should say, about the true story of the woman who took on the world's most powerful mafia, has just hit paperback in the United States, correct? In about a week's time, yeah. Okay, well, um, people can check out your work there as well. Alex Perry, Thanks so much for joining me today on Culturally Relevant. Really appreciate it. Thank you.